Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. All right, all right, bring it on up, bring it on up. All right, so uh, when I was young, my family took a uh, or a trip to El Paso, Texas. I don't know if that's like a landing place that most people want to go on for a vacation, but that's where my dad wanted to go. Now, part of the reason that my dad wanted to go El Paso, Texas was because when he was in the military during Vietnam, um, one of his forward operating, one of the places in which he was stationed was, was in El Paso, Texas. There's a really large um, uh, base there. And so my dad uh, wanted to take us there to just kind of show us a pivotal place really in his development and of his life. Now, one, one day my dad wanted to uh, take us into Mexico, which if you don't know this, El Paso is the U.S. bordered city that has a bridge into a Mexican city called Juarez. I don't think that's how you say it. I think that's like the gringo way of saying it, right? But anyways, so it's called Juarez or something else. But anyways, it's right across the border. And uh, it's a pretty rough city now, I'll be honest with you. Um, but 40, 50 years ago when my dad was in the military, it wasn't nearly as rough as it is today. You said it was beautiful and things along those lines. Anyways, before crossing into Mexico, I remember my parents, as we're crossing and walking over this bridge, arguing uh, about, do we need a passport, yes or no, to get into the country? Now, there's a problem. I didn't have a passport at the time, and I knew my parents didn't have passports either, because neither of my parents um, have ever gone outside of the country. My dad did when he was, well, went to Vietnam, but I don't think you need passports when you're declaring war. So anyways, um, I remember uh, them just arguing back and forth, and my dad was sure that we didn't need a passport, my mom was sure that we did. And so as I'm listening to them bicker and argue about this, I remember developing a little anxiety, I guess you would say, as we're walking across the bridge to the checkpoint, I'm assured we're going to get arrested, you know, because that's like what every like, third grader thinks, it's just your worst nightmare is like, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to be in a Mexican prison, right? That's what I'm thinking. Of course, it's like not going to happen because we're on the U.S. side, but whatever, Right. And so as it ended up being, uh, 20 years ago or something, I don't think you didn't actually need a, a passport to cross into, uh, at least on, on the bridge, uh, into Mexico. Now, now, now you do. Now, a few years later, I was in fourth grade, and my dad took me to another place, which was um, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, which is um, Philadelphia's largest city, by the way. And that was the place that my dad grew up in. I remember as we were boarding the plane, I was kind of freaking out because... I thought, for some reason, that we needed a passport, and I knew we didn't have passports, and I remember my parents bickering about this, and so I'm thinking, we need a passport to go to this new place. Now, the first place, uh, uh, um, we drove to Texas, which is a pretty intense drive, um, but that was my first time on a plane ever, which was going to uh, Pennsylvania when I was in the fourth grade. And so in my little mind, we're going to a new place, going to, uh, and and we needed access in this new place, and the only way to do that was a passport. And again, I was sure we were going to get arrested. See, in my little mind, we were crossing a line that we shouldn't have crossed. So I remember my dad one day, or as we're about to board the airplane, he noticed that I was a little anxious, and so he knelt down and said, buddy, what's going on? And I said, dad, we we don't have passports. And I remember my dad saying this, buddy, we don't need passports to cross uh, state borders, just international borders. Then he said this, From one state to another state, you don't need one because as a U.S. citizen, we're traveling around in our home, in our own country, right? Here's the point of all that that illustration, that the Christian faith is kind of like this. We have national borders and we have state borders. And if you leave the national borders of the Christian faith, you no longer have Christianity. You entered into a new county, a new country, uh, a new citizenship, and a new religion. Now, the state borders, though, are things dealing with methodology. They're things dealing with, let's say, opinions. Leaving them keeps you in the country, it's just we may differ on certain, uh, and keeps you in the religion, let's say, but maybe we, we have different opinions on things like, on different things. So for the Christians, right, like I said, there are the national and state boundaries and borders, things that if you leave, you're no longer a Christian, 
I'll just give you a few. Um, if you label yourself a Christian, but you don't believe that God exists within a Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you attack the Trinitarian argument, you're not a Christian. Um, if you believe that you're saved any other way than by grace through faith alone, if you think you have to do works or things like that, you're not a Christian. Um, if you don't believe that Jesus was God in a bod, you're not a Christian. Um, uh, certain Christian cults believe that he was Michael the Archangel incarnate, um, that he was uh, the, uh, the spirit brother of Satan. That's what Mormons believe, not God himself. Um, and then there's state things, like if you uh, disagree, you can still be a Christian. I'm going to talk about a few of those really today. But in weeks past, and Rob really kicked this off with uh, two or three weeks ago, with this kind of idea, we talked about closed and op- open-handed beliefs. Closed and open-handed beliefs. In other words, there are things you must hold fast to as a Christian, and things we can keep in the open hand, we can agree to disagree. Let me give you maybe a story. Many years ago, uh, I had an intern, it was Josh Kim, and um, he was incredible at, at talking uh, with people about just faith. Like, I don't know what it is, he's just like a non-threatening, non-anxious presence in people's lives, but that dude was always bringing people to church. And he didn't even go to a public school. He graduated uh, high school when he was, no, he graduated college by 18, so he just skipped over high school somehow. So I don't know how we had these networks of people, but like, when he was coming to our high school group, he was just bringing tons of people. And I was fascinated by it. Even when he was becoming young adults, bringing tons and tons of people. And he was just super good at it. So one day he came up to me and said he met these awesome Christians who had this not awesome belief. And the belief was that you must be baptized in order to go to heaven. And if you aren't baptized, you're going to hell. And he said, well, do you want to meet with them? They're interested in meeting with a pastor in my church. I was like, oh boy, do I? Right? I was like, so I was amped to sit down with them, right? So we went to Panera. We broke bread and obviously drank cold brew together. And uh, I remember that we were sitting together, and they, I said, all right, so Josh has told me that you guys believe baptism is essential for salvation. And they go into this lengthy argument why they think that's, you know, that you must be baptized. So I said, all right, let me create a fictitious scenario with you guys to see how, you know, you guys hand it, or handle it, right? And so I said, I imagine this guy named Sam the Sinner. Sam the Sinner, we meet just right now at Panera. And we share Jesus with him. We read the Bible to him. He feels convicted of his sin. Sam the Sinner wants to be Sam the Saint. Right? And so he realizes that he needs to give his life over to Jesus Christ, that there's one way to heaven and one person that can get us there, one access to the Father in heaven, John 14, 6, right? And so let's say he, he feels the conviction, he gives his life over to Jesus Christ. Now, Sam the sinner is Sam the saint. But I say, let's, let's say that in our conversation, you guys bring up baptism and you say, look, great that you believe in Jesus. Now, if you really want to go to heaven, you must be baptized. And he's like, okay, I'll get baptized right now. They're like, good news, our church is across the street. Weirdly enough, it was across the street. So um, that, that's the scenario that I created. And so I said, I said friends, let me, let me, let's say in this scenario, Sam, the sinner of saying, we don't know yet, is walking across the street to get baptized. He's moments away from just cannonballing in the pool, right? And... As he's on his way there, he gets hit by a bus, and Sam dies. Is Sam a sinner or is Sam a saint? In other words, does he go to heaven or does he go to hell? And they said, well, we believe that he would go to hell. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Like, like, moments earlier, he's given his life, but because he didn't get showered in some water or he didn't go get plunged under the water that you think now Sam is going to hell. And so then I said, you guys have a works-based religion, and you don't understand the heart of the gospel. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, I think we have this for you guys. It says, for by grace you have been saved uh, through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one will boast. Or we talked about in a week's previous, Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, or 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God had risen from the dead, notice it says nothing about baptism and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and justify with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So friends, let me ask you the question. Have Josh's friends years ago, have they crossed national or state borders? 
national state, what do you think? So raise your hand if you think they've crossed state borders. Raise your hand if you think they've crossed national borders. Yeah, in this case, they've crossed national borders because they've developed a works-based religion and not the biblical faith-based one, right? They think you have to add a work, that you have to be baptized now. So today, Paul's gonna teach us how to maintain fellowships with who have stayed within the national boundaries but have strayed in the state boundaries, now have different opinions on, let's say, how to worship. I don't know, I've, t- I've met with so many young adults in, in, in years past that have said like, well, like, we don't like seacoast worship, at least in the main stage, because you guys have different lights and there's sometimes a fog machine and this type of other thing. Or the pastor doesn't wear a suit. Or uh, you, have a, you have some women that are, that are uh, oh, there's a pen in my, uh, uh, you have some women in ministry roles there, or I don't know, uh, whatever. Or can a Christian drink White Claw, et cetera, whatever it is, right? They have, these are state boundary things, not national boundary types of things. Now, the truth is, there is a lot that we can disagree and divide over. Paul wants you to know what those things are. That's why he spent chapters 1 through 11 dealing with theology. And so if you're kind of a Bible geek like me, you like the Greek, you like dogma and doctrine, those are our chapters. 12 and onwards, all the way to 16, which is where we'll wrap up um, in a few weeks, is all about uh, like walkology, how the theology is applied into one's life in a practical living, right? And so now Paul wants to encourage us how to have right relationships with fellow believers that are in the national boundary, I guess we'd say. So go with me in the book of Romans chapter 15, verses one through two. We're gonna be doing, I think, 13 verses today or so. And uh, follow with me, it says this. We who are strong, those of us that are mature in faith, have an obligation, a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I highlight not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So this really is all about something called Christian liberty. And it's what a Christian can do with the freedom that Christ gives them. But here's an important question. When should, when should that freedom be restricted for the sake of the development of another believer? I created a bunch of fictitious scenarios last week. I said we had Adam the alcoholic, and I said let's Adam joins a life group that uh, meets at a bar after, uh, after church or whatever it is. Is it wise for Adam to, one, join that group, or two, the leader of that group, to continue that practice knowing that Adam had a history of alcohol? The answer was unwise. I think we said Leonardo the Luster. <laughs> their, their group meets at uh, Venice Beach in the summer. Probably not the best place for Leonardo, right? Would it be wise or unwise for that leader to continue to meet there, even if the other guys in that group don't have a problem with lust? It would be unwise, right? Not that only it's sinful or that it's, that, that it's right or wrong. It just may not be wise, right? And so when should, the, when should our freedoms now be restricted for the sake of the development of another believer? That's kind of what Paul is dealing with in this chapter. And so if you need a rule when to exercise the fullness of your Christian liberty or when to give way to someone else's viewpoint, it's good to know that the first and foremost, God cares most about unity in his family. Look, I know some of us, we may come from dysfunctional families. One of the, one of the things that, that's so problematic about coming from a dysfunctional family is there's no unity. Like there, there is no real sense of togetherness and acceptance within the family unit, right? And so one of the things that God cares most about his family, i.e. the church and all the churches that are around us, is unity. And that's that we may disagree on the state things. We need to agree on the national things. And if we disagree on the state things, it's okay to disagree. It's, it's, yeah, agree to disagree. And that we should give up our right to be right if it moves us out of a right relationship with a fellow believer. That was the last week's sermon. We should give up our right to be right if it moves us out of a right relationship with a believer. So I wrote it this way, and I think I have a slide for you, just the way that I think of it. Exercising a full friendship is greater than exercising your full liberty. Let me give you maybe another, uh, switch gears with me, we'll go this way. 
So it's very clear, right, in the scriptures that Jesus drew a line in the sand. Here are the things you must believe, repent, all this type of stuff if you want, if you want salvation, right? And he also drew a line in the sand on what it looks like to be in a right relationship with him. He drew a clear line in the sand, and Jesus lived on the line. But here's what I've learned about a lot of Christians. And look, I have the capacity to be really legalistic, to think that we do things better, think that my way of theology is the right way, or whatever it may be. And so what I've learned is we often draw lines in the sand that he didn't draw. And then we judge Christians, not off the theological standard, but our opinion, or what we don't like and what we do like, right? So the line that, think of it this way, right? Like, I know tons of Christians that say you can't go to a party. It's pretty clear that Jesus went to some parties. The Bible says that he hung out with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. That's like the equivalent of Jesus going to the club. <laughs> Not really, but you know, I don't think they had a DJ at the party, but you get it. Um, I know Christians said you can't drink alcohol. Well, Jesus didn't turn water into Gatorade. He turned it into wine, right? Uh, I know a lot of Christians that say that, oh, you can never be alone with a woman if you're a male or vice versa. Well, Jesus was very clear, the woman at the well. He was, he was alone with a woman, right? Now, Jesus being perfect, being God in a bod, he could live on the line and never slip up and never, never tempt anyone else to slip up, right? Now, some of you guys, some of you guys can maybe live on the line. You can have, a, you can have a access to um, a screen in your room or the bathroom and know you're not gonna slip up with pornography. You can, you can uh, uh, be alone with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Early on in the church, by the way, um, there was no such thing as dating. And so uh, the way in which, like you were never alone with the person that you would potentially like marry, and things along those lines. Now, in the modern world, it'd be kind of silly to always have your parents like hanging out in the room with you guys, right? But, or have like a, you know, a piece of wood <laughs> between you guys, um, like in ancient times. Um, but some of us can get close to the line and some of us can't. Whatever the line is, maybe, maybe you can have a glass of, of wine or uh, have a beer with your friends or whatever it is, but the other person can't. So we have to figure out where our line is and then in proximity to the believers that we do life with, do we need to move our line around certain things so we don't cause the other believers around us to be tempted to do something they shouldn't do? That's really the heart of what he is talking about here. Now I wanna kind of pause for a second. We have to remind ourselves that this is written into a different time. It was written 200 decades ago, right? And it was written where Paul is trying to teach and encourage and instruct Jewish people and Gentiles, non-Jewish people to live harmoniously together people that had complete different philosophical systems and ideological worldviews. Both of them are now coming to Jesus Christ. Some of the Jews are, and some of the non-Jewish world is. And he's trying to figure out how to get them to mix and how to get them to, uh, uh, to live amongst each other. So some of the non-Jewish people were like, dude, have some bacon. And the Jews are like, this is the end of the world, right? And so he's just trying to get them to figure out how to live together. He says, look, for some of you guys, you're gonna have to restrict your Christian liberty. Can you eat bacon? Yes, you can now. But it may be a problem for your Jewish brother or whatever it may be. For the Jew, maybe it was okay for them to drink wine, but for the Gentile, that was a religious practice where they always had to get drunk, and so for them, it wasn't. And so he's trying to help people realize that at the heart of it, we are to love other people. And so he's trying to figure out this balance of fellowship with these different types of individuals. So he gives us three factors here, three factors that help us with these issues. The first one is an example that comes from the past, which is Jesus Christ. Go with me to Romans 15.3. For Christ did not please himself, but that as it is written. So he's talking about that Jesus is the ultimate example of the person who didn't necessarily live life for his own pleasure, but rather he put other people first. If there is anyone that's ever lived who could put themselves first, it's God in a bod, right? But he orientates himself towards other human beings, other people, right? 
The next says, um, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a rewording of Psalm 69, 7, um, where it says, your insults were casted and they fell upon me. And what he's talking about here is that the punishment for our sin fell upon his shoulders and that he suffered for our sake. But I'll make it simple. Here's what he wants you to know here, that Jesus's humility changed the world and yours can too. Jesus's humility changed the world and yours can too. Verse four says this, for whatever was written in former days, talking about the scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. The second factor here is God's word. It's important to understand that it is to be a guide in our present on how to be humble, how to live a submittive life, which is not what you and I want. Paul says that it's written in the scriptures for our instruction and it's for our benefit. It's good to know always what God wants and expects of you, right? And it's also good to know what the family rules are and how he wants the family to operate. But that's not all that God says about the Bible. Elsewhere, he wrote a letter to a guy named Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, all scripture, so all the 66 books of the Bible, are inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be, I want you to highlight this word if you have it in your Bibles, or at least make, make note of it, complete, equipped for every good work. Here is what this verse really communicates. It has a lot of theological backing on, on the usefulness of Scripture, but one thing is this. It's, it's an anthropological statement. A person will never be made complete or whole without the Word of God active in their life. What does it say? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every single good work. So you ask, why? Why, why could you never be complete without an active participation in God's Word in your life? It's because the Word of God teaches your purpose why you and I exist. It teaches how we should love God and how to love others. The Bible tells us why we have life and, what we're supposed to, and how we're supposed to live out that life. It's our guide, it's our map, it's our roadmap. It's, 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 it's how we are to live with the gifts and talents that God has given us. So why does the word of God tell us about our, yeah, what does the, what is the, what does the Bible, the word of God, tell us about how we're to live our lives? Well, it tells a bunch of things, but there's 635 laws in the Old Testament. Jesus bored them down to two. And he took them from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse nine, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then commas in the New Testament, the book of Matthew chapter 22 says, love your neighbor as yourself. It is to be in a constant state desiring the betterment of those around us. Over the years, I've given you guys a handful of definitions of love. Let me give you one that gives you a lot of application. Love is to will the good of another even at great cost to yourself. Love is to orientate yourself towards the will and good of other human beings around you even if it's at great cost to yourself. I think we learn this the most in Philippians chapter two. This is a doctoral statement about who Jesus is and how he lived his life. It says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every single name. There's tons here, but let me just give you this. Contrary to what the world would teach you, you lose nothing by putting other people first. We live in a world that's like a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? Where our, like, our visions of success are people serving us, not us serving them. I have a driver, a chef, a butler, or this, or that, or whatever it is, an assistant, whatever. And Jesus has this counter kind of perspective of what success really looks like. The last will be first, the first will be last. That's what it says in the book of Mark, right? So he has this counter perspective that you lose nothing by putting other people first. In fact, in all the verses I've just quoted and given to you, Paul gives us a picture of a willingness to give up our right to be right for the betterment of others and to be others-oriented. 
He wants you to know that you lose out on nothing by being other-oriented, and you, be, you lose out on everything by being focused on yourself. He'll teach this in a moment. Go with me to verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For a second, let me just pick apart this verse with you guys. The first is may the God. The truth is it's not only the power of God that we're saved, it's all the power of God that gives us the ability to live the Christian life out. Like you, you, were, like you were saved by surrendering your life to Jesus, what would make you think that following him looks any different by a continual surrenderance and reliance upon his spirit? Number two, it says God will grant us, gift us, and, uh, enable us endurance and encourage to do what we need to do to love one another and live in, this word is harmony, we'll talk about it in a second, with one another. I think the truth is, and you can agree with me on this, that you and I, we're not really good at being humble on our own. We can't live in harmony on our own. There's just something about us, right, that's bent towards ourselves, I mean, especially like our generation, whether you're a millennial like me or you're Gen Z, like we grew up with iPads. We grew up with iPhones and iMacs. And if you're old like me, an iPod. Really quick, raise your hand if you had an iPod in here. Okay, I don't feel like I was perfect. All right, cool. Uh, I mean, we're, we're a generation primarily concerned about I, right? So I think living in harmony with other people is going to be difficult to say the least. I came across an article while studying for this in the Journal of Social Psychology and Personal Science, and the article was on something called clinical narcissism. If you don't know what narcissism is, it's at its core, it's a belief that you're more important than everyone else and that you're entitled to things because you're more important than, to them, or than them. According to the article, it says something that's interesting. It says that, this, that the clinical narcissism has increased 30% in the past 20 years. It said this, it said two out of every three people now measure high for this disorder, clinical narcissism. I mean, what did we think, right? What did we think would happen when we put front-facing cameras on our iPhones and told a generation of people to start taking selfies of themselves, right? That we'd now develop a, a, this, this, where we're egocentric, self-centered. We don't think about other people now, right? Which brings us to the third factor here that Paul wants you to know, that we, you, I, we need a supernatural change to be others-oriented, and then we need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be others-oriented, to be non-narcissistic, Go with me to verse eight and let's switch gears real quick. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, highlight that, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus was circumcised on his eighth day? The answer, he was, but why? Circumcision was given to the Jews for them to be set apart, right? And so on the eighth day, every Jewish male child was to be circumcised to set them apart. I could go into the details of it a little, and we have in weeks past, but circumcision is a sign of you saying, God, I give you my sexuality, and I give you the right to tell me no when, I, when you don't want me to engage in sexuality. It is, uh, uh, it's often where a man historically has gotten, it's where they procreate, where they set standards and values for their family, right? And so circumcision was brilliant in God's eyes, that I want you to be cut away in all that you are for the purposes that I have for you, to be set apart. So why would Jesus get it? He's completely set apart. He's, he's the lamb without blemish. He is completely sinless. sinless. Or think of it this way, right? Um, he who would declare all food to eventually be okay to eat never once ate bacon for breakfast. Never had a ham sandwich, Canadian bacon, nothing like that. Or never knew what the taste of shellfish was like, lobster or whatever, right? In fact, he even got baptized with John the Baptist. I think about this often. Like, can you imagine like, how wild that would be baptizing Jesus? Like, when I baptize people, I always say like, 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then I baptize them. What would John say? Like, in the name of your daddy and, and you and your spirit. You're like, like, I have no idea, like, what do you say? I think about that. It's kind of funny. But anyways, go with me to verse 9. In order for the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's our answer, by the way. We'll go into it in a second. As it's written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him. Extol means to bring honor to his name. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, if you don't know who Jesse is, Jesse's got tons of sons. One of his sons is named David. David creates the divinic lineage where we have Solomon and then eventually Jesus is born out of King David's lineage. Uh, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, talking about Jesus, in him will the Gentiles have hope. It's saying that, that because Jesus acted in humility, that eventually all the world could be saved. If you're a non-Jewish person in here, this verse speaks to the reality that you can come to know Jesus because of, uh, of Jesus' humility to reach outside the borders of just the Jewish faith. But the answer is here, humility is how God changed the hearts of the world. And he, Jesus, knew it was humility that would set the example for us. You know, if you read the book of Revelation, which is kind of an interesting book to read in the time that we're in right now, to be honest with you, um, you'll realize that Jesus' first coming was all to demonstrate humility. He came as a baby, born in a cave, to peasants and teenagers. His second coming, however, looks drastically different. He comes as a judge. He comes as a warrior, as a, as a, as a, as a king in some sense of the way. So why, did, why was his first coming? Why did he not crack the sky open? and descend like on a unicorn or something like that in his first coming. Because he knew it wasn't going to be power that was going to change the hearts for people to love him. It was going to be humility. That if he could humble himself, like Philippians 2 taught us, that he could win over the hearts, minds, and souls of people. His second coming, he will come in power. Verse 13. Verse 13 may be one of my, uh, my very favorite verses in the New Testament because it's one of my very favorite prayers by someone other than Jesus. It says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Before I dismiss you guys in the groups really quick, I want, to follow, I want, to help you, like, I want us to follow the, like, the logical steps in this prayer. It says that God fills you with his joy and peace when you believe. Really quick, like, in fact, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you 30 seconds. Turn and discuss. What do you think it means to actually believe? Like it says, may the God of hope, right, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So what do you think the idea of in believing is? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You have 30 seconds, turn, discuss, ready, set, go. All right, bring it back up, bring it back up. If you're here this last weekend, you heard that uh, Cody, he launched a series in the book of Romans um, that I'm super amped on. We've done, this is our 37th week. They're only doing five, but um, it'll be fun. Um, the uh, word for belief in scripture is synonymous with the word trust, and it's the word pisteo. Pisteo has this idea in the English language, we've created two words to break off this, this old word of trust and faith and belief. Um, in the English word, we have faithful and we have faith. If I'd ask you what faith means, you would come up with a different answer than the Christians in antiquity would come up with. You would come up with believing certain things. But if I said faithful, you would realize that it would, it would be, there's a responsibility there, that I'm upholding certain obligations and responsibilities like in a relationship, right? In the English, in the English language, we have two words. In the original language, the Hebrew or Aramaic, Aramaic which it was written in, they only had one word that talked about trust, belief, and faith. And it was pisteo. 
And it wasn't the intellectual assent to believe certain things separate for how you live. So I'm going to read the verse again, just the, the front of it. It says, may the God of hope, what is hope? Hope is holding on to patient expectations. That's what it is, is that God has promised good things for you and that we need to be patient in holding on to them, holding fast to the promises of God, right? May the God of hope fill you with all joy. What is joy? Joy is a sense of anchoring in an, un, in an uncertain world. See, happiness only happens if something happens. It's a happenstance-oriented type of worldview. Joy is a sense of anchoring, a sense of contentment where God can bring things into your life and take things out, and you are built on the rock. Whether the wind comes, the wind waves blow, whatever it is, you are content and oriented towards God and peace in believing. It's more than just the intellectual assent to believe certain things. It's an act of living it actually out so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound again in hope. It's this idea here. It's the belief that God's in, in control of all of your circumstances. What we talked about weeks ago in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, for God works for the good for those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. It means that whatever has come your way, an illness, a loss of a job, whatever it is, a, a, a failing class, whatever, whatever has come your way, God can use that thing for good. That's the promise in scripture. Verse 29 gives it context to conform you in the image of a son. Whatever comes your way, there's a God of hope, a God of joy, and a God of peace that promises in scripture to take those things in your life and in my life, those, those bad moments or whatever they may be, and recycle them and give them purpose. That's the promise there. And that you can experience joy and experience peace and have a hope. Even your darkest days, God can turn something and make it good. So that's what God does. And that's what he promises. But he ends with an obligation to us that our job here is to support one another, care for one another, and love one another. So let me wrap all of this up to get you guys in the groups to talk about it for just maybe 15 minutes. Here it is. I think I may have a slide for it or not. It says that we will live, or we live with humility as our aim, to serve other people. This is not the orientation for most people, and it's not me by default. I'm probably pretty narcissistic. You could ask my wife, she probably would say, yeah. So we live as humility as our aim, the Bible as our guide, and we'll leave as Jesus as our example, and we only, can only live this way because we have the Spirit as our power. It's these things and these things alone that'll equip us to live with unity with other people. Put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for us, and then I'll get you guys in groups. Lord God, we thank you for today, that you're God that went first. Scripture reminds us of this reality that you came to serve us, when really in actuality, nothing that you needed to do. You are a king, you are a lord, lord of lords, king of kings. And Father, you cared enough, God, to, like Philippians 2 teaches us, humble yourself, even to becoming in the form and likeness of a man, and then death upon a cross. And so, Lord, I ask that you continue to orient ourselves for the care of other people, to will the good of another, even at great cost to ourselves. That, God, is our aim. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.